0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. Whether you're listening to us live or you're listening to the podcast, thanks so much for joining us. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good
2: morning. How are
1: you? I'm good. Are you, uh, how's the ecologist world going today?
2: Uh, how it normally goes, I think is probably a fair answer. <laughs> that bad. <laughs> <laughs> that bad. <laughs>
1: Dr. Jen, welcome. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see
0: you. You too, on this gorgeous Mother's Day.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, it's not raining currently.
0: No, no, it was lovely this done. morning.
1: Yeah, all done My Mother's
0: morning. Day present was going for a big run this morning without my children, and it was <laughs> a lovely morning, just sunny and very pretty.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure that how that works, but um <laughs> cool. Whatever floats your boat, I suppose. <laughs> speaking of boats uh,
0: (laughs) or
3: floating (laughs) or floating or floaters
0: I think Chris KP (laughs) I
3: I think there's there is a wonderful celebratory irony about someone celebrating Mother's Day by avoiding the one thing that makes you a mother
0: Avoiding them,
3: I just went and had a little run. She could tell us on about a nice right. morning. Yeah, okay, well, it's fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's all good. Anyway, we've got an hour of science for you folks. We've got some um, some guests waiting in the green room. But before we get to them, we want to give you some news. So, Doctor <laughs> Ewan, let's start with you. What do you got?
2: Oh, I thought I might talk about frogs mm. and chytrid fungus, which is a big problem for frogs. So, as Kermit would say, it's not easy being green. And <laughs>
0: I was about to sing that, but I thought hey,
2: I should interact. Hey, I'm happy to pause. Are you ready?
0: <laughs> it's not easy being green.
3: Oh boy, lovely. Should uh, we just? Keep- really, I, I, Chris <laughs> Kepier, you could to chimed in there. No, no, no. I know when I'm, uh, you know, outclassed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: If not. there was a song of a chytrid fungus, I'd have a crack at it. <laughs> You've got 20 minutes on the clock to come That's up with right. oh, After the break, Chris will be back. <laughs>
2: That's
1: right. So back to the fungus on the front. Yeah,
2: so chytrid fungus is, is really, um, it's a big problem for amphibians right around the world and it's caused the extinctions of potentially over 100 plus species of amphibians around mm. the world. Um, and it really emerged in the last century as a huge issue. And it occurs in a whole range of environments, including pristine rainforest environments that we sort of look, would look at it and say, well, you know, amphibians should be doing really well here. This good habitat is relatively undisturbed, and species have completely disappeared from those habitats. And so, mm-hmm. the question has always been about, you know, which species are going to be impacted, but also where did this thing come from? And so, it has been thought that it's been around for sort of thousands of years. But a recent study in Science by Hamlin and colleagues has actually shown that it's probably emerged far more recently, um, using genome sequencing um, of about 200 samples from right around the world. They managed to trace the hotspot for uh, diversity of this particular um, disease. Well, it causes a disease called ketridium mycosis, which essentially affects the skin of the frog. So frogs respire through their skin as well, and mm. they regulate you know, water, electrolytes, a whole range of things. And when this um, pathogen affects the frogs um, substantially, it causes heart failure and they die. Mm. But they can't breathe properly essentially as well. So it's, it's a horrible thing. But they found that they've traced it back to the Korean Peninsula so that's where the most diversity for this particular pathogen is. And in this study, they've also found that there's other strains as well that are present that could also affect uh, amphibians. But I think the, the point of it is is what they suspect is what's happened is in sort of the last 50 to 100 years or so, um, there's been a huge increase in the trade of amphibians mm-hmm. around the mm-hmm. world, um, probably both illegal and legal, and that has contributed potentially to the spread of this um, pathogen, which has had a is- huge effect on frogs around the world, including in Australia.
3: Mm-hmm. Are, they, are there? Uh- Amphibians in the Korean Peninsula that deal with this better than the ones here? Because the ones here are not great at it.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's really variable. I, I haven't got into the Korean amphibians myself, but I know, as an example, in Australia, that, that's also <laughs> Hang on. the case. Hang yeah. on. So, <laughs> moment to laugh. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Good. Um, so I don't know. I'm not an expert in Korean amphibians, but uh, <laughs> what I do know is that in Australia, there is also some that are quite tolerant of kitchen um, fungus and oh, others yeah. less so. And also, the environmental context is really important. So they found. And I think it was uh, with green and golden bell frogs, I think, that were living in, I think, what was old quarries where the water was a bit saltier. Mm. They could survive because the fungus couldn't survive in those saltier mm. conditions whereas in some of the um, areas that were less disturbed, mm. they were doing less well. So mm. there's a real, yeah, it's really variable in terms of which species are affected but also the environmental context that those species find themselves so, in. So,
1: so, so is it likely that many of the species of frogs we're talking about here have never encountered this fungus before, like, and so they literally have no yeah, defense so against the it? so
2: So this particular variety of kitchen um, fungus of which there's many mm. um, has a, had a really big effect so it's you know recently arrived and of course I've had no real sort of immunity or mm. you know way to deal with it um, frogs can behaviorally um, uh, I guess respond to it so they'll, they'll go up into the top of uh, leaves and branches and sit in the Sun okay and that kills the fungus mm. so they'll bask and try and get rid of it that way temperature has a big effect on the fungus as well so there's a whole range of things that um, will again affect whether the You know, fungus takes over, but also whether the frogs can do anything about it. But Mm -hmm. of course, there's limits. So, but I think it's just another highlight of the fact that you know this huge trade in wildlife has huge implications Mm. for the health of populations all around the world. And it's yeah, it's obviously something that's hard to stop, but we you know we need to and and Mm. quarantine and so forth. Which we're lucky to have quite good quarantine in Australia and also be surrounded by water. Yeah, pretty helpful. Um, You know, still massive role to play.
1: And something tells me, and I'm not a biologist, but I suspect the fungus will adapt faster than the frogs.
2: Yes, yeah, a red queen kind of thing, isn't mm. it? Yep. So, yeah, not a good. Dr. Jen. Yeah.
4: Well, for
0: something very different to Korean frogs, I want to talk about ancient Egypt because, you know, cool. why not? Yeah. Um,
1: everyone loves a pyramid.
0: Yeah, everyone does love a pyramid. So everyone's heard of... King, however you want to pronounce it, Mm. Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun. Mm. Everyone just calls him King Tut because no one knows how the hell to pronounce it properly. So he was very famous. He died in about 1323 BC. He's famous, we think, because he became king at only the age of nine or ten. But from my reading, I gather that actually he probably wasn't at all um, particularly important at the time. The reason he's become so important is because his um, tomb is the most complete uh, Egyptian royal tomb that's ever been found. So that's why he's so famous because everything was kind of still mm. there. Um, and he his- been found very late. Yeah, uh, 1922. Yeah, which it is was found. which is late. Absolutely, and so his yeah. death mask has kind of become mm. the symbol mm. of, of ancient Egypt. But about three years ago, there's an Egyptologist called Nic- Nicholas Reeves who, on the basis of some high definition laser scans, proposed that there were these um, previously unknown chambers behind one of the walls mm. in King Tut's burial chamber. We talked so, about that on there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thermal so, imaging and
1: so forth. They did. I think. Yeah, they, too, they yeah. did
0: all of this imaging, mm. and it looked as though there were these empty spaces yeah. behind the wall. Um, and his argument was: this egyptologist proposed that this was the tomb of the legendary queen Nefertiti, mm. that that's where she would have been buried. And there's a whole lot of other bits and pieces that would have made sense as to why King Tut's chamber was smaller than expected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then, in the intervening three years. Um, obviously in Egypt they really want to know because this would be the most important find of the century if, if mm-hmm. they actually found these uh, chambers behind the wall. And so the first uh, scans that they did suggested yes, definitely, 90% sure there are there are man-made spaces mm. behind there. The next scan said no, nah, there's just no way, there's nothing behind mm. there. So this week at the 4th International... I
1: think, I think just, and just pause on that because I think the wall we're talking about though is not just a blank wall.
0: No, no, it's covered in paintings, yeah, so, beautiful paintings.
1: So pulling it down is not something you just, you know... It's not an option. Yeah, not an option. No. Disturbing
0: the, it in any way is, is not an option. What were,
3: what were the scans done with? Like, what sort of scans
1: well, were
0: they? Well, I'm glad you asked because let me tell you more. <laughs> Please. So this, this week at the 4th International Tutankhamun <laughs> <Tutankhamen laughs> Conference in Cairo, they, they decided um, it, the, the latest study was presented. So basically the Egyptologist said we have to know one way or the other. This is so important. We have to do whatever it takes. Mm. So they got three different independent groups all to use um, ground-penetrating radar which is generally used for, um, so it's a remote sensing technique Mm -hmm. and it's generally used for looking for minerals, so looking Mm. for oil, looking for gas. And it's the best way we have of detecting, you know, a man-made space basically behind a wall that cannot be damaged or knocked down in Mm. any way because it's too precious.
2: Can I ask a silly question? Sure. Has anyone ever thought about digging a hole down deep? And then across, and then up again.
3: Bum 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 bum
0: I, I don't think they can. They can risk damaging the structure <laughs> yeah. in any way. It's it's yeah. considered and to you're too. Not, you're, precious.
3: Not, you're just not allowed to do it. That's
0: the no. thing. Like, no, yeah, you're not okay. allowed to.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that has been proposed. <clears throat> it just seems like a very easy solution to getting behind the wall without damaging the wall. But
3: see, yeah, for me, it would be
2: but... use of termite
1: drones.
3: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. termite drones, yeah. single termites.
1: Because you know,
3: little <laughs> gaps they find their way. Well, you in. could use you could use Dr. Ewan's idea, then, but which is a much smaller tunnel, <laughs> <Yes>. a really <laughs> tiny yeah. tunnel. See, it's not a, crazy, it. not, not a crazy noticed. idea at all. They're probably already there. The, the termites have been knowing they know years ago.
1: Gone. I used to do some other authentication work, and we, we used to use this microscope to determine. You know, where these paintings were authentic. Mm. And and we'd, we'd burn the little piece off, mm. but the piece was like 150th the size of a human hair. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we'd damage. <laughs> 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 but who could see it? You know, without a microscope, you know, who's to know? Right? Some of
3: the stories are a masterpiece, um, but nobody knows. Yeah, does it really know, happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Picasso. <laughs>
0: Anyway, moving right along. So three independent teams using high, medium and low density um, frequency. So the best possible way to try and get an answer to this question Mm. because they just really needed to know. Um, And to cut a long story short, it appears that uh, there is no man-made space behind this wall. Mm. So the three teams um, analyze the data independently, then put it together. And their best understanding is that the previous findings which suggested there was this Mm. this open space behind the wall was because instead of the radar waves penetrating through the wall, it turns out that they think these beautifully painted walls can actually conduct electricity. Oh, wow. And so the waves were moving along the wall rather than actually going through the wall. That's a bit cool. And led to these misleading results. Interesting. So it seems that... That this amazing potential find is not there at all, but it's pretty cool the science that's been done in the process of trying to <laughs> work it out.
3: I love
1: it. It's, I mean, because we've been we've actually been following that on, on the show for quite some time, yeah. and it's it's you know it'd be great. To, it would be, yeah, it'd yeah,
0: be great. But termite drones,
3: though, maybe we need to termite suggest drone. it. High <laughs> time.
1: Let's it's send high them, time. them in. Send termite them drones, them. and yeah. if they don't work, the termite ants. Yeah, be on a smaller space. But um, <laughs> termite drones. I mean, people are
3: working on this stuff. We've talked about this anyway. Uh, it's time. It's time for you Chris It's 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 your time Uh, Well so I I wanted to sort of uh, Briefly draw your attention to two News stories not for the news stories Themselves but for the fact that that they highlight The inordinate Value of Experimental design It's, It's the great Craft of the scientists mm. is being able to f- have a question and find a way of, of, of manipulating reality to get some sort of useful answer, I guess. Um, so there's a bunch of scientists at the University of at Liverpool who are interested in looking at um, the situation or the circumstance, the context in which a domestic dog may attack someone, may bite someone. Now, if you think about this for a moment, there are a lot of ways you might choose to do this. Obviously, you need the dog to bite or mm. at least get... Undeniably close to biting, (laughs) so there's no question it's going to. And then you can, you know, you can you can look at what kinds of factors might influence that, and that's great. Except, of course, it means a couple of unfortunate things. One is it means you've got to manipulate a dog and kind of make it uncomfortable, either by frightening it or hurting it, or um, or or um, or what's it after? You know, um,
0: completely freaking it out, freaking
3: it out, or yeah, for whatever reason, (laughs) making making its only Mm. course of action to bite. Mm. Then you've got to have someone or something to bite. Um, Mm. And and whilst students do some weird. Stuff for money. I think asking, asking someone to get bitten so by a dog. I, I, have this, is, you know. I
1: have this image of you wrapped in bubble wrap with like no, I'm thinking a rock chain mail. hanging off you.
0: A no, chainmail suit. Yeah, well, p- people bubble
1: do wrap. this for training
3: dogs, so you could do it. Yeah. But but apart from the fact that there is a, a sort of a, um, a health and safety question mark, it's also a little bit unreal, too. Mm. Mm. So the problem is, what do you do? So what they did is they said, well, let's not, let's not ask a dog to bite anybody. We don't need to do that. Because there are loads of videos of people being bitten by dogs all over the internet, and so, <laughs> happily, so they went trolling the internet <laughs> uh, and they had a few key search terms, and they found uh, they actually studied 143 videos of dogs biting people. Now, obviously, you don't get a really serious, savage attack on YouTube that lasts very long because it's too serious and it gets taken down. So they tended to be smaller dogs and smaller bites, or certainly smaller, smaller damage, um, and you know things that people thought were funny. People's sense of humour is strange, but, yeah. Um, and the the result of this was, yeah, of the study, was really, well, pretty much all the stuff that we kind of understand about dog biting is confirmed by these videos. Don't stand over a dog. Don't poke it in sensitive places like its eye or its butthole. Um, don't climb on its back. Don't restrict its liberty. Let me guess. Um,
0: don't put your hand in its mouth.
3: Ideally not. Uh, <laughs> Or your face. Don't lick a dog's <laughs> teeth, for example. All these things, you know. And also, um, if a dog starts to, you know, starts to hunker down or pant or lick a lot for no reason or pin its ears back, maybe don't stay there. But what I loved about it was the fact they went through a process of going, well, how do we find, how do we test this stuff in the real world without having the real world? Mm. Which reminded me, which drew me to this other story. Deal with this, if you will. So you're studying spiders, Right specifically very, very small spiders. And by that, I mean a couple of mil across, like okay. really weeny. But they're jumping spiders. Mm. And that's how they eat their still prey. scary. Yeah, well, they <laughs> it's on my eyeball.
1: I hate spiders. For me... Do you well, really? Yeah, I'm massively erect. Are you really? Didn't yeah. know I didn't that. I that either. Yeah. So the thing I, about these control, guys is, I control it well.
3: The thing with about these guys is, is... With my shoes... Ah, now, see, these little guys are so small. You could be, you can have several on your back right now and you wouldn't know. See, when you search stuff like that, I'm getting a slight. (laughs) I know. He's got a (laughs) sweat for on his (laughs) forehead. (laughs) <laughs> but the thing is, so if you were studying these spiders, which clearly you wouldn't be doing, um, you would need to actually get some serious magnifying lenses to be able to even get down and see them in any level oh, no, of detail. Oh, no, I they were there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my, my spidey sense would be there. Your spidey sense
3: is, be, is peaking.
0: If you get um, on your CV, well-developed spidey sense.
3: Yeah. It's not, very, it's not useful very often. Mm. Um, but the problem then is, you go, well, so how do you make a spider? Because they don't just jump randomly. They jump a particular height using a particular, um, you know, coordinated mot- uh, mo- uh, locomotions or Um So it's <laughs> not just one leg or eight legs. It's a combination in mm. different. So how on earth do you get close enough and then make them jump the way you want, when you want?
0: Surely you just put the right music on.
3: Because <laughs> white spiders can't jump, is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, they're, they're a pale brown colour more than anything else. Um, but what they did is it's kind of obvious, and I love it in terms of its, its, its elegance and experimental design. They decided, well, these spiders have this ability to do this. The only thing we're missing here is the capacity to trigger it. So they trained the spider. Hmm. they trained a spider to jump, not just jump at all, but jump particular heights, particular directions, and then on command, they could make this tiny spider go wherever they wanted pretty much, and so they can decide we need more data on this kind of movement. Okay, let's give it that command, and off it went, doing that over and over again. It's so simple. So how did so, they
0: train them? Yeah. What, was it a carrot or a stick?
3: What, what were the treats? I want to <laughs> hear about the spider treats. So is it the spider spi- treats? Back. Um, hang on a second. I did have, here we go. Um, oh, um, where is it? 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 I'll get back to you. I've got I've got notes on mm. that. Okay. I'll get back to was you. Was it again. a fly <laughs> dipped in chocolate, or I mean, was it was a fly not dipped in chocolate? <laughs> See that that sounds like weaponizing spiders. It to sounds me. like very kinky spiders and flies to me. <laughs> Just
1: sounds like people weaponizing spiders, which I don't like the sound of at
3: all. I'll, I'll get you that data and get back to you. It's quite elegant. Hmm. Cool. That's all I have. <laughs> well, um, thanks for that. <laughs>
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio with us now is Aldi Compress. She is the regional coordinator in Melbourne of the Pint of Science program. Eldie, welcome to RRR.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, Pint of Science it sounds like a, a bad beer. <laughs> um, tell us about this. What, what, what are we doing with Pint of Science?
4: All right, so Panascience is a festival that aims at making science more accessible to the public. Um, so we choose our very inspiring scientists. We invite them to talk to uh, the public about their research mm-hmm. in a relaxed setting, the pub.
1: The pub. Yes. So do you wait and, I mean, how late in the day do you have to do that? Like, do you have to make sure the public are... Uh Sufficiently lubricated.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we do start at six thirty PM, so mm-hmm. people have time to have a bite to eat and have a drink, and then our presentations start at seven and go all the way to ten PM. So oh, okay. people have plenty of time to hear science while drinking their beer.
1: Now, have you got scientists coming along that they can give presentations without PowerPoint?
4: No, so they all oh, have slides. I'm so to make it more interesting and engaging.
1: I hate slides. (laughs) Uh, So so describe what the average night's like. I mean, is this like a couple of presenters giving quite long presentations or is it a lot of short ones? I mean, what, what would people be in store for?
4: All right, so um, people come, have a bite to eat, a drink, and um, our beautiful MCs will get the crowd excited, um, start doing trivia and games and activities, um, and then it's time for our presenters to talk about their science. So we've got three presenters each night, and they have 15 minutes to present their research in a fun and engaging way. And in between presentations, there's plenty of time for uh, people to engage with their speakers and ask questions and go get another drink. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mid speech. Mm. Uh, now you did this a couple of years
2: ago, Doctor. Uh, yeah, I think it was last year. Yeah, Great. it was heaps of fun. Yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. So mm. yeah, for speakers, yeah, and, I think and audience. You, you mentioned yeah. lubricated audience. I think the challenge for the speakers as well is making sure that they don't become lubricated before so they I, give their talk because you're in the pub and it's very tempting,
3: of course. I so. wanted to ask about that because so <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of drunk history, and I, <laughs> it just seems to me like the, the the experts they have, and I would say the same for the the scientists at part of Science, they don't lose their expertise or their interest. So is, is, does it ever become, is there a point where you find that it's actually more engaging because the people that are speaking have, have had a couple?
4: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think everyone sounds Good. more fun after a drink or two anyway.
3: Excellent. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I mean, I know in my old community,
1: in the physics community, I mean, that'd be the first drink that they've had. Okay. So no full stop not so. that we're endorsing
2: the consumption of these what? things
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've moderation yeah. I' have another question too about about the the audience so obviously people can turn up because they know what's on they can go great that's I want to go and see that do you get a lot of people who just happen to be in the pub anyway going what's all the noise about and wandering over is that is that do you do you attract people on that level
4: uh, so some venues only host pine science these nights uh, especially the spotted mallet uh, yep. it's quite well-known already amongst science lovers in Melbourne for (laughs) hosting fun, um, scientific communication events. Um, So some venues only have Science on and other venues will have their regular customers, but some venues are selling out. Um, Mm. So yeah, get in quick if you want tickets. So
1: let's talk about the venues because I know there are, there are an awful lot of pubs around this country. Um, How many are you putting this on Ash and and where, where do people, where do people go to find them?
4: Yep. So um, in Australia in general, we've got 30 different pubs in 16 cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Melbourne, we've got four awesome venues. So we've got the Hawthorne Hotel, mm-hmm. the Richmond Bowling Club, um, mm-hmm. the Royal Melbourne Hotel and the Spotted Mallard. So each um, venue hosts the festival. And um, yeah, we're really excited about it.
1: Mm. And is there a website people should go to The find it.
4: Absolutely. So, um, www.panoscience.com.au and that's where people should go to get more information and grab the tickets. Mm-hmm.
1: And my understanding is this is um, from what you sent through. This is actually done in 21 different countries this year around the world. So, th- it's not did it start in Australia? I mean, I, I like to think that pub things start in Australia. <laughs>
4: <laughs> No, unfortunately, yeah. it
1: didn't. Oh, um, oh, bloody New Zealanders again, I suspect. <laughs> not even close. Wow.
4: started in the UK, actually. Oh, there you go. Well, so you know. uh, in 2013, three cities in the UK hosted Pond Science for the first time, and from there it grew bigger. The first one that was held in Australia was in 2014 in Sydney, um, and from there we grew bigger. So hmm. now 16 locations across Australia.
3: So, tell you what, wouldn't it be the most intellectually stimulating Pub crawl, <laughs> oh, to go from one to, from the to go UK the all oh, the oh, way yeah, around, yeah. yeah, not just Australia, no, no, there's
1: 21 oh, the countries. Life, yeah, 21 imagine countries.
3: that,
4: <laughs> yeah, but you're really,
1: awesome. It's
3: over three days, Chris. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Is that right? All these three can,
1: days. Can we make three
4: the, nights? Exactly. Three
3: nights. Has someone yeah. done the, the analysis on whether we can make the dateline work for it? Because I'm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, with new aircraft and so forth. Who knows, right? Yeah, yeah. it's possible. Yeah. You can maybe do a couple by a Skype or something. A guy can dream.
0: Chris, just send your termite drones ahead to <laughs> do it for you. Yeah,
3: that's <laughs> my right. Your army. Your army of <laughs> course. minions. <laughs> yes. Well, Eldie, thanks so much for coming in. Now it
1: starts tomorrow, doesn't it? So there's still tickets available?
4: Yes, they are, Uh, but getting quick because, as I mentioned before, some venues are selling out, so, Hmm. yeah.
1: Fantastic. Well, folks, it's the pint of science. It's on for the next three days. And, um, look, uh, Dr. Ewan's done it before, which would have been fun. It was awesome fun. I talked did, about you, did you make people drink more after your talk? Because often, you know, we can a bit cold I get a bit depressed and I want to.
2: like. Yeah, you're never, you're never really sure whether they're drinking to celebrate or to commiserate.
1: Uh, I can imagine I'll the, take either. It's fine. I can imagine the venue saying, get that guy back. We sold this
3: shit of the booze <laughs> right here. To- <laughs> nice. <laughs> Fantastic.
4: So I would like to mention as well that um, this year we're excited to be sponsors by CSRO and mm. Australia's National Science Agency. So, we also have um, their speakers that are really exciting.
1: Great. Thanks so much for coming in, Aldi, and um, good luck with the Planet Science events. We hope they're all sold out and <laughs> people learn some science and hopefully don't leave with consumption problems.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: We have our second guest in the studio, folks. It's Dr. Carlos Kuhn. He's a postdoctoral researcher within Fleet, working at Swinburne University of Technology on ultra-cold atomic gas. That's correct. Now, Carlos, welcome. It's great to have you in here. Um, first of all, Fleet, we're, we're having a few guests from you guys uh, on at the moment, and it stands for...
5: Stand for Future Low Energy Electronic Technologies.
1: Yeah, cool. Um I'm going to forget it every week because yeah. it's, it's complicated. It's That's why I print out as well. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you've, got you know, a, you've got on your t-shirt. It. Yeah, you're wearing I got the yeah, sure T-shirt yeah. today. to see yeah. if i in the spirit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a wicked accent, man. Where are you from?
5: I'm from Brazil originally.
1: Yeah. And how long
5: have you been here? Uh, about five years.
1: I thought you were going to say about five minutes because the accent's awesome. Like it's still, you haven't lost it at all in five years.
5: No. Yeah. It's something I'm trying to lose, but I have heard it's no. very hard to yeah, lose. No, hang, no, no, hang on
1: to it. Yeah. You, <laughs> don't, you don't want to sound like a dirty Aussie. Like, uh, uh, yeah, trust me.
5: Make it easy to the students understand you.
1: But <laughs> don't I think don't worry they, about it. they got over. Ah, don't worry about the students. Um, <laughs> 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 no, no, none of the people without accents do. Oh, that was harsh. That's not true. Um, I'm sure there's one or two out there that really love them. <laughs> Dr. Jen's one. Anyway, um, now let's talk about your stuff because um, you, you're working in particular on this quantum gas microscope stuff. So, first of all, we, we need to unpack what a quantum gas is for people because most of our listeners probably won't have heard of this term.
5: Okay, yeah. The fact is a quantum gas because the atoms are very, the gas is very cold. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then what make a transition in the gas is not like temperature. Like the water boiling normally, those are classic transitions. Mm-hmm. In the quantum gas, the system is so cold, then quantum fluctuations are what make the transition happen. Then you can understand the rules, what make the dynamic of the system are quantum. Mm. Then the microscope bit in that quantum is because we are going to build the first, it's a first of a kind in Australia. You have, you have one in Germany, they are building one in the United States, in MIT. Is then you're gonna be able to see the atoms, each atom individually, mm-hmm. and manipulate using lasers
2: mm-hmm.
5: each atom, and then you're gonna be able to make the link between the, the quantum properties of those atoms in the nanoscale to the micro, right. macros micro scale mm. and you have all the thermodynamic laws and you have like superfluidity, all those things
1: so so let me unpack this a bit you so normally when we think of transitions we're talking about you know you take you take water and you cool it down and it freezes or you heat it up and it turns into a gas and and there are transitions between various states yeah. but with these quantum gases we're not talking about things like temperature causing those changes. We're, we're talking about the actual fluctuations that naturally occur in these quantum states yeah, of individual exactly. atoms. Yeah. And, and so this microscope is going to be other. To- Look at those and see how those changes then affect the sort of larger scale properties of these materials. Is that Perfect. Is that yeah. yeah, perfect. And, and so I mean what <laughs> there you go. So I remember a little bit of science from it. <laughs> Yeah. So good. The, the um so the interesting thing is then is how do you I mean how do you control these gases on that scale? Like,
5: okay. we you have to use light right? lasers. Okay, everyone always thinking lasers heat up things, mm. but it's n- not. Laser you can use to cool it, and I think that's what makes laser cool. Right. <laughs> oh, no, <was> a big <laughs> job, Yeah, sure. sure. yeah sure. good.
1: <laughs>
5: but, okay. But, yeah. Then we're going to shine light, and the interaction between light and matter is a lipo interaction. Then we can, like, create potential where you're going to trap those atoms, and then you can manipulate those atoms like pretend those atoms are like a crystal mm-hmm. like a matter mm-hmm. and then we're going to be able to simulate like a matter and to guide the different ways you could make the fluidity of the electrons in a superconductor and that's what the link of that research with the fleet mm-hmm. because the fleet wants to be able to build a switch a electronic to, to the computers in such a way you do not waste energy Right, and right. then you can be faster. Like that's the superfluidity, superconductive yeah. thing.
1: So, so when you're using light to control the atoms, is is, is that more because light actually, uh, like we often forget this, but it, it imposes momentum on objects when it hits them. Like it, you can actually transfer, you know, you can actually push something with light. We don't think about it normally that way, but you can. Is that, is that what's happening, or are we, or is it something different?
5: We, in the case of the cool down, is more the fact of. the... A top shift with the frequency of the laser and the atom. Then get a You can think like in a two-photon transition mm-hmm. okay, or in a photon transition when the atom will catch one photon from the light mm-hmm. and then when it emit the light? Yep. uh emit this like in a random way. Oh, okay. Correct. Then the atom will is moving in that direction. They get the transition. Then to conserve momentum, when the light goes away, that wow. photon go away. You stop the atom down.
1: Mm. So you're slowing them down.
5: Slowing yeah, you're slowing down. down. That's yeah. the process to pulling the yeah. atom. But then for trap, you have like a similar interaction. You can think like a scattering process as well, what then causes like a dipole force. It's not much pressure. Maybe you can think in a pressure way, but it's not much like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can confine the atoms in that potential.
1: And how, so when you cool these atoms in this way, I mean, how does that compare to like, so if you're just out in space, like outside of our atmosphere and you come across random atoms and they're at a certain temperature, are these much, much cooler than that or is it that sort of? range are we uh, i mean how cold are these
5: things yeah no uh, the things we are talking about is like in nano the
1: temperature nano yeah
5: is we extract more energy than what the free atoms will be in the space mm. uh, i guess and i'll never be in the space <laughs> <big trouble. laughs> yeah.
1: chris kp has this uh, 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 is very cold
5: the <laughs> atoms are like uh, inside a vacuum chamber yeah where yeah. like uh, it's very low pressure then if they cannot, like, interact if they are not, uh, then it's kind of vacuum. You can think, like, in space, space in vacuum as well. Then I think if you have a closed atoms there and you take off the kinetic energy of it, this is going to be cold as well. Mm-hmm. Then I think it's comparable. I think yeah, yeah. maybe not, but so, I can be so, wrong.
1: And so if you, if you grab all of these atoms and you're controlling them all with these lasers, you, you're telling me that you can simulate with that any crystal structure?
5: Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The cell is that, but yes, you can you can make like three D lattices mm-hmm. or two D lattices. For the fleet ones, we're interested in the two dimensional ones mm. because that's when you have like the superconductivity yep. going on. And then you just like shine the lasers in such a way he confine, and then the atoms you're going to be attracted. Hmm. Uh, I've,
3: I've got a, I've got a um. A really stupid question. So you're essentially positioning atoms using lasers and you can do it up to a, like a whole 3D shape, if you like. How How long does it take? I mean, if, if someone cuts the power off and all the lasers just stop being held in position, how hard is it to get them back where you want them?
5: <laughs> uh, that is... Not have at all. Once you have the machine. Not for you, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good one. Uh, the, it's not hard at all because once you have the machine, that's the, the difference between the condensed matter is every time you want to try a new topologic material, you have to manufacture it.
0: Right.
5: With the atoms, you have the atoms already in the chamber. Then you have just to switch your lasers with the right interference pattern, and then you get the atoms trapped in the position you sure. want. Mm. And then this will be like once the machine is built. But the lab is like just start to build. For yeah, us, yeah, right? yeah. You have just two tables and <laughs> frames and in the work on, then they have a lot of opportunity for students. Mm, that's cool. I don't know. I would like us to have an opportunity to to talk about another thing with Fleet is doing. Yeah, what else? Is the outreach.
1: Oh, the outreach <laughs> programs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're taking the atoms out? Yeah, good, good
5: <laughs> one again. <laughs> yeah, and not take the atoms, but. We you are? you have made your atoms, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's
3: brilliant, <really awesome>, but yeah. <laughs> not that cold. Not that cold. <laughs> it's going to be freezing. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Chris
2: Kepi is ice
1: cold. <laughs> it's right. He's cool. He's not <laughs> so <cold. Stop>
5: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, is because the fleet is also another. It is a center of excellence. Is they take it very serious to take science out to community, hmm. and that's why you said you have a few guests from fleet. And then you are trying very hard. And one of the things they are taking very seriously is like how to inspire kids to do science.
1: Mm. Um, lasers will do that.
5: Lasers yeah. do it, yeah. yeah. Lasers, lasers always you, bur- do you, you, you burn some it.
1: shit with a laser and the kids are hooked.
5: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, then they do have like in the website, they have a, uh, every week they release a video how to kids can do science at home. hmm mm. And by itself, with a supervision of adults, <laughs> I always tend to say that in
2: your <laughs>
4: especially
1: if it's got frogs and lasers. Yeah,
5: anytime lasers and children are involved, definitely supervise.
2: <laughs> yeah, <that's>,
5: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, and also they they motivate the researchers like us to pair with CSRO. They have a program on what existing professionals at school, mm-hmm. and I actually doing that, uh, and it's very easy to get involved. What you need just to do is to send an email to say, ah, I want to to work in a school as a volunteer to help the science. They give you back the the partner where the schools in the area you set.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: And then at the moment in the school in the day, teaching kids of year 11 and 12 how to code Python. Ah,
1: cool. Oh, yeah. yeah
5: because yeah. I think coding is something very important yeah. for the scientists. Yeah, definitely. And also for the year 10, then you're doing rocket science. Uh, it's rocket science. We are using soft drink bottom to introduce nice. they how to use the equations and determine which one goes higher. They, they design the project for they themselves. Yeah, I do cool. the launcher. And then you're having a lot of fun. And the idea is like to to make they think like a scientist, like yeah. to see oh, what makes mm. my rocket go better, yeah, yeah. then what needs change for the next interaction. Then that way you're going to get the scientific method to the kids. Mm.
1: Mm. Now that's great. Look, it's good to hear, because the Centers of Excellence do get a lot of money, so a bit of outreach is uh, definitely what they should be doing. So it's good to hear that Fleet is doing that well. Carlos, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us about this. Um, the, the individual atom control stuff is really fascinating, and, and the new material properties you can get yeah. out of doing that. Um, we heard a bit about that last week from one of your colleagues and hearing more today, it's, um, it's really cool. So thanks so much and good luck.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Dr. Carlos Kuhn is a postdoctoral researcher within Fleet working at Swinburne University. Three triple. Ah. In the studio with us now is Matthew Vallepin, and I'm sure I butchered that, but he'll correct me in a minute. He's from the Materials, Science and Engineering Department of Monash University. Matthew, welcome to Triple R. Hi, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me here. How do you say your name? exactly what I said yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you
3: did of that I mean
1: you play that back folks it is indistinguishable
3: alternative facts <laughs> fake news nice <laughs>
1: nice. Um, okay now we, we've got you on because you've been part of the Fame Lab, the British Council's FameLab competition which had their final in Perth just on Thursday um, I mean first of all just tell us a little bit about that competition because it's a it's a really great one for scientists
6: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, FameLab is a science communication competition where um, as a researcher, PhD, you can you, you may be a PhD student or you may be a postdoc <coughs> or even a lecturer whom I have completed within five years of your uh, PhD tenure. Mm. You can participate and you can just present your research to a general audience. You have to make them understand. You can use some properties and no slides, no power no points, and no jargons. That is, the, yeah. that is the highlight and you have to, you know, uh, reach to the make the audience understand what you are trying to say. Yeah.
1: See, I love the no slides thing. PowerPoint is the enemy of a good presenter. You, but you can, <laughs> yeah, you can use props. Yeah, you can use props. You can have... use any props as long as it's not a snake.
6: As long as it's not, <laughs> not a snake. Is that, is that a rule? You can't use a snake. Like no living animals. No living in. Not no living,
2: living in. No. What about no the That's unfair.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I, know, I agree, yeah. Yeah. Chris K.P. would probably use a garden snake, I'm sure. They wouldn't let um, you in the room. They wouldn't let you in the room. No snakes. Now, let's talk about your work because um, it, it's, it's fascinating. I haven't really thought about this before, but you, you work on a, a new way to look at how the repair damaged heart cells. So can you talk us through first what happens when a person has a heart attack to the cells in their heart? What's going on? Yes, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, what happens is after a heart attack,
6: two to three million heart cells are dead, and then uh, in the dead dead portion, a scar is formed. Sorry, you mentioned to
1: be the two to three million. How many have we got total? That sounds like a big
6: number. Yeah, two to three million compared to the you know uh, we may have around billion or like oh. more. Really, a lot lot of heart lot, cells. Yeah, but okay, yeah, okay. But I'm not very really sure about the exact yeah. number, but. Uh, even a minor heart attack can result in two to three million of heart cells. Right, yeah. It might die. So when mm. it's dead, um, naturally heart muscle cells, they don't have the innate tendency to replicate or grow again back. Okay. But at the same time, you know, the skin cell, which is like a heart fibroblast, those cells, they grow more quickly compared to the heart muscle cells. This results in formation of a scar. Okay. So. Just so, we, so we've
1: got both cells in our heart. We've got skin cells and we've got normal heart cells. Yeah, normal so the, heart the cells. The muscle, the muscle cells yeah, the pumping.
6: Like, yeah, yeah. Generally, like there are three <laughs> three types of cells in the mm-hmm. heart. One is the heart muscle cells, which, yep. re- which is responsible for pumping pumping action, yep. and to give the structure, heart fibroblasts. Okay. Yep. which is like um, you know it gives the exterior structure of the skeleton. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, uh, endothelial cells or the the cells which are responsible for you know giving up uh, blood supply. Blood circulation, mm-hmm. loss of nutrients, and all those all those kind right, of sorts. Right. So what happens is when this fibroblast cells like they grow more quickly or more quick compared to this, you know, the other heart heart muscle right. cells. So this results in formation of a scar. When a scar is formed, what happens is, of course, like it it limits the contractility activity of the heart.
1: Mm. So so because so because you're just talking about that's like the um the scaffold that's sort of growing more of that you don't need. Is that, is that yeah, right? yeah 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 it's like it's like a general
6: boon if you have if you have cut mm. your hand mm. it, a scar would be formed yep. the same thing happens to your heart so when a scar is formed in the heart of course, it, it can't pump again. Mm. But, you know, do you know that uh, you know heart can pump enough blood to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool in just one year?
3: Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. You, You'd die if you yeah. tried to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless with blood, it was blood. would look amazing. It wouldn't
0: <laughs> it would be, be that recommend. nice a pool to swim in either. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah.
6: So, so like my work really, um, you know, um, try to fix the heart. Where mm-hmm. when a scar is formed, of course, it can't pump. So we are trying to uh, uh, grow. I mean, like print a scaffold first using three D printing, and then do some post processing, and then we'll grow the heart cells on it. Mm-hmm. And when the heart cells we grow
3: it, like we can get a beating patch outside in the lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you um if you' so i 've had a heart attack, and so you 're going to get some of my cells and try and grow them up and and put it into my heart while you 're doing that, is my heart not forming the scar tissue? Do you have to remove that scar tissue and then replace it or h- how does that bit work uh yeah it's it's actually um at present the current treatments
6: they used to uh, do they used to use the stem cells, which the cells which are right. obtained from the patients mm. and then they've tried to add some uh, you know growth factors and things and then they 've injected but the problem they'll inject it to the scar region but yes. the problem is the heart that cells which are being injected they they don't stay put right so and anywhere they were anywhere yeah, yeah. migrate to somewhere else in the body so of yeah. course it's it's a drawback so if we have a scaffold or something like a sticker like a band yep and then where the cells are yeah. been anchored and you then can, can, keep can just keep it on there yeah sure yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess I'm curious about how important exercise is versus sort of more direct repair about what you're talking about. So, you know, I can imagine if, you know, if you exercise more, your muscles work better, you know, in terms of what they do. But also what Chris was saying that, Um, presumably, you know, when you've got that interim period after a heart attack, if you're not particularly active, I would assume that means you're less likely to be building stronger Mm -hmm. muscle fibres too, right? So does that mean that if post-heart attack and obviously within reason, if you were encouraging people to become really active, would that have an effect on the recovery of that heart in terms of whether it's growing more muscle fibres as opposed to sort of, yeah, more scar tissue and, and scaffolding? Is that true or am I just sort of, you know, guessing there? I guess I'm just curious about, yeah, how much of it you could kind of treat Via you know physical exercise and so forth versus direct sort of intervention of the heart.
6: Uh, yes, it's a very good question. Um, to be honest, I I believe that uh, of course after a heart attack, the heart's capacity is not as the same. So, of course, you mm. can do physical activity to uh, you know to be healthier, mm. but not over activity. It's mm. like if if we do a lot of like which is if we strain the heart too much then I think it wouldn't be good 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 for you know so, solving a problem.
1: So yeah. when when you take the materials out and you do this work in the Petri dish and you build up the scaffold, I mean, how is that different to what the heart naturally does? I mean what what difference are you trying mm. to create to make this system work better? Because you still have the same materials essentially from the heart. Or I mean what, what are you changing to, to make the the heart grow its right cells back instead of the scarring? Uh, actually in case of scarring, what happens is, as I've
6: said, the, the fibroblasts or the skin's heart skin cells, mm-hmm. they grow more. So there's a scars being formed, but the number of the cardiomyocytes, which is the heart muscle cells are very less. Mm-hmm. So if you want the heart to pump again with the very good, uh, the, the previous efficiency yep. or better efficiency. Of course, you must, you must have the heart muscle cells more, right? Compared mm. to the heart skin cells. Mm. So what we are trying to do is like maybe we'll just put the heart muscle cells instead of the skin cells. Yep. So when the heart muscle cells, which is responsible for pumping is being feeded on or feed or seeded on the material and being grown. And when we place this, we anticipate that it might help the heart to, mm. you know, Regain its
1: pumping yeah. efficiency. Yeah. Where, whereabouts is this work currently in terms of its progress? I mean, are you are you doing this in live you know animal models, or are you is it being tested on people yet?
6: Uh not yet.
1: Uh, actually, like um, there is no patch being tested in
6: humans till till now, mm. like throughout the world. Yep. And uh, in my research, I'm in my second year, and uh, as of now, we are working. Uh, we are trying to test with the rat animal cells first. Yep. Right, right, heart cells to be more precise. So we'll test with that, and then we'll see how it goes. Mm. And then later on down the line, we may try to collaborate yeah. with leading yeah. cardiologists and
1: you know. Sounds pretty good. Some, yeah. Now, now let's get back to the Frame Lab competition. How'd you go? Were well, there ten ten people. Ah, yeah. Usually it, ten it, ten finals? because this is all the the winners from all the all the various states, yes. all compete then in Perth in the grand final. Mm-hmm. So you you won uh, yeah. Victoria.
6: uh, uh, uh no, actually, like, it's like, um, the to be to be really honest, the journey was really great. It was yep. a great journey. And then what happens is, first, we have to, uh, they'll call for applications. And then within three minutes, we have to tell our research. We have yep. to take a video. Then we have to submit an online application. Yep. And then the organizer, they will shortlist the best, which they right. feel the best. And then they'll call for the semifinals in each state. Uh, right. yep. Yep. So there'll be like 12 for in each uh, twelve being called, so in my case, I didn't win the Victoria semi-finals, but I was selected by the British Council to represent Victoria. It's, oh, like, cool. it's <laughs> like yeah, it's like the uh, two winner and runner will be automatically uh, you know they'll proceed, and the mm-hmm. one uh, one who's being selected by the British Council, they'll go for the semi-finals, and from the semi-finals, f- from each states, like they'll uh, finally compete in the grand final, which yep. is like uh, in uh, ten people in Perth. Yeah, yeah, yeah ten people, and yeah. It's, it's actually 11, 11 and it was like really, right. really, it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah. How'd and you go? Yeah, it was really good. And I, I feel very humbled to be, uh, to receive a lot of love from the audience and oats since it's an audience choice. Award, yeah. So I feel really
1: excited. So you, so you won the audience choice award, but not the judges first
3: award. Uh, I, yes, yes. Yeah. Like, so, you know, well, that, that makes me the judges just know. I'm, I'm assuming the like, audience is like, smarter than the judges, that's yeah, just absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's
1: a sheer case of numbers, you Who know. Experts, are, what right? three judges and a couple hundred people in the audience, <laughs> you know, what would they know? <laughs> you know, what would they know?
6: Yeah, uh, but the, even though Venus and around they were like very good, so yeah, yeah, no, least, <laughs> but, yeah. That,
3: that, that
6: that's good company, kudos, very well done. It's Thank fantastic. You.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's really, um, it's great to hear about this stuff. And I think there's really, um, this is a really good competition, which I love mainly because it doesn't have slides. And I love the prop thing. And even our own Dr. Lauren did it a few years back. She was um, one of the contestants. So I love the fact that they're in those slides and it's a bit more, um, just a bit more open-ended. So yeah. thanks for chatting to us. Good luck yeah. with the work. And hopefully we'll be repair- repairing those hearts in no time flat. Yeah, sure. Good sure, luck thanks. with your PhD. Yeah, it's from uh, the Materials Science and Engineering part of Monash University. Now, we have to uh, get going, I'm afraid. But Dr. Ewan, thanks so much for coming in.
2: Pleasure. Thank you.
1: Dr. Jen, great to see you too.
0: You too, Dr. Shane.
1: And Chris K.P. Yep. Thanks for not changing
0: <laughs> the locks. So, it's good
1: to be that's, here. That's next week, Chris. Good, yeah. good to have you, mate. Um, anyway, folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gergo. Uh, remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website
4: at rrr.org.au.